Hello, my name is Kate Charlesworth. I'm the Environmental Sustainability Lead at South Eastern Sydney LHD. I'm a public health physician and I also have a PhD in low carbon healthcare. So many of our staff are really interested in sustainability and I get a lot of requests to speak or to run workshops. Um, obviously, it's difficult to do those group sessions at the moment. And so I've recorded this presentation. Now, my usual sessions are very interactive with lots of Q&A and discussion. Again, that's not possible in this format, but my email address will be on the last slide. Please do feel free to get in contact if you have any queries or if there's anything that I can help with. Okay. This is what I'll be covering today. And the large font indicates the three key messages. Okay. The first one is that climate change is a health issue. And our district and indeed the health sector in this country is at significant climate risk. Second one is that health professionals have a particular responsibility and indeed an opportunity to act. And then lastly, what you can do. We'll be looking at actions that, that you can take. Um, at CESLED, we've developed a top 10 actions for 2020, and I'll be going through those actions with examples and case studies and stories for each. Um, and that photograph, for those who haven't recognised it, that's actually Bondi Beach during last summer, the bushfire smoke of last summer because an early symptom of the climate health crisis. Okay, so to start, I just have three slides, one on climate science and two on common myths. Okay, so this is climate science in one slide. So the earth has around it a layer of greenhouse gases. Okay, and common greenhouse gases are CO2, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, water vapour and others. Okay? And they're called greenhouse gases because they're very good at trapping heat, just like a greenhouse in a garden. So we have this thin layer of greenhouse gases around the earth and we need it. Without it, the earth would be way too cold for us to live on. And that layer has kept the earth at exactly the right temperature, like the Goldilocks temperature for thousands and thousands of years. But then something happened about 250 years ago, the industrial revolution. And at that point, we started to dig up fossil fuels, the coal and oil and gas and burn it and burning it produces CO2 and a number of other things. So for thousands of years, we've had this perfectly balanced Goldilocks temperature from, this, from our greenhouse gas layer. And in the last 250 years, a relatively short period of time, we have been adding more and more and more and more CO2 to that thin layer. You know, we now have, of course, 7 billion people on the planet using energy and resources at an extraordinary rate, producing huge amounts of that pollution. And so that thin layer has now become like a couple of thick quilts, and that's global heating. Now, there are a number of myths around um, climate change. This is myth number one. That is that scientists can't agree um, about science. And so this slide is to dispel that myth. This is from NASA, so a very reputable scientific source, and I'll talk you through it. So on the x-axis, you've got time from 1880 up to about 2010, 2012. And then on the y-axis, you've got temperature anomaly. So basically average temperature or temperature above and below average, below that line. And then there are four different colored lines on that slide. And they represent four different leading scientific organizations. Now every year, each of those organizations compile temperature data. They've got thousands of different temperature stations around the world. They compile that data and then they make an independent judgment about whether that year was warmer or cooler than on average. And there are those four different coloured lines. So you can see that there's a bit of variation, but overall, those four lines agree extraordinarily well. 
They all show these peaks and troughs in sync with each other. They all show rapid warming over the past few decades. And they all show that last decade was the warmest on record. That's why they say now 97% of scientists are walking around in a state of suppressed panic. And this is myth number two, so which is that, oh, the CO2 rise that we're seeing, that's just part of the natural variation in the Earth's history. And again, this is from NASA, this is to dispel that myth. Um, so you can see on the x-axis, we're at sort of time zero, and then it goes back more than 400,000 years. And then on the y-axis, you've got CO2, so carbon dioxide in parts per million, the CO2 concentration. So you can see that CO2 concentration has varied quite considerably in the Earth's history, between the um, warmer interglacial periods and then the colder ice ages. But where are we now? We are off the scale. We're well beyond the realms of that natural variation. Um, can't really see that last bit, but that that rate, the rate of rise is unprecedented. It's almost a vertical line. And of course, this is entirely consistent. That level of CO2 is entirely consistent with what we've been doing for the past 250 years, which is burning fossil fuels and producing CO2. So that is why scientists are now saying that we're entering actually a new geological age, the Anthropocene, Anthropo caused or induced by humans, in which humans are actually dictating in a very dangerous way the Earth's climate. This is an article published actually by a scientist from America earlier this year. And the key point that it makes is that what we're seeing is not normal. Half of the Great Barrier Reef has been killed by underwater heat waves. We then had prolonged drought for a number of years and then unprecedented bushfires, you know, with rainforest burning. And then the bushfire smoke and the air pollution that affected millions and millions of Australians. And then storms and floods. This is not normal. And this article was written by Professor Will Steffen, who's an earth system scientist at ANU and one of our leading scientists. And he makes two really important points. The first one is that scientists have actually underestimated the immediacy and the seriousness of the impact. And in Australia, uh, in the future for what we're on track for, it's gonna be a tough continent to survive on. The second point that he makes is about the extreme urgency of the situation. Scientists are now understanding that climate change is not going to be a linear process. Okay? There are tipping points and feedback loops inherent in the Earth systems and interconnected systems. So once we hit a couple of tipping points, that will set in, you know, in cascade, a whole series of other impacts. Okay? So we can get runaway climate change. Um, and the Earth would then ratchet up to a hothouse Earth scenario in which temperatures are five or six degrees higher than pre-industrial temperatures. And of course, in that situation, much of the planet would not be habitable. So if we think that we've seen disruption over the past few months, um, really it's just a warm up for what is to come. So why is it a health issue? Okay. So when most people are asked what the health impacts of climate change are, what do you think they say? This is air pollution, smoke haze, malaria, Vector-borne disease, sunburn and skin cancer, floods, extreme heat waves, and bushfires. And all of these are true. But these aren't the big issues. These are the big issues. That's um, drought or crop failure or food and water insecurity. 
economic disruption, mass migration, civil unrest. And the last one is Easter Island, of course, a remote Polynesian island as an ex held up as an example of civilizational collapse. Cut down all their trees, used up all their resources, and effectively wiped themselves out. Um, and because they're so remote, they had nowhere else to go. And the analogy, of course, is that this is what we're now doing, but on a planetary scale. You've seen the placards. There's no planet B. And these things are not an exaggeration. This is from the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, um, talking about the future threats of further global heating. Um, increased scarcity of food and fresh water, extreme weather events, areas becoming uninhabitable, mass human migration, conflict and violence. This is why we're worried. And this is why increasingly we're seeing headlines like this, and like this. And this graphic really just um, reflects the, the title of today's presentation. <clears throat> so now I just want to tell you a little story. This is one um, told by the author of the reference there, Eric Chibian. Professor Chibian is a Harvard physician and a Nobel Prize winner. And he tells this story about this little creature. This is a cone snail. Now, cone snails are a group of predatory snails that live on tropical coral reefs. And cone snails paralyze their prey for food, so small fish and mollusks and other things, by firing a poison-coated harpoon at them. And there's thought to be about 700 different species of cone snail, and each of those has several different hundred peptide poisons they put on their little harpoons. Now, so far, medical scientists have only investigated about 0.1% of all these different peptide poisons. And already they're making some remarkable discoveries. So zaconitide, zaconitide is a new pain medication used to treat um, severe chronic pain unresponsive to opiates. And what's remarkable about zaconitide is not only that it's a thousand times more potent than morphine, but also that it doesn't cause addiction intolerance. This is like, one of the holy grails in pain medicine. This is what pharma companies have been looking for for decades. And they found it in a cone snail. And there's various other cone snail products at various stages of clinical trials. There's some for treating um, resist resistant epilepsy, some for projecting um, nerve cells after head injuries, some for projecting cardiac cells after heart attacks. Medical scientists think that cone snails could lead to more important um, human medicine discoveries than any other group of organisms. There's one problem. Cone snails live on tropical coral reefs and they could all be gone when the reef is gone. This is just one example of what loss of biodiversity and global heating means for health and for medicine and for humanity. And climate change is an issue of social justice. Okay? So this is a cartogram, this is published in the Lancet about 10 years ago, and it shows for the period 1950 to 2000, the production of greenhouse gases. Okay. So the countries, the regions that were the biggest carbon polluters are basically they're in North America and Europe. The second part of the cartogram shows the same period of time, so 1950 to 2000, um, the distribution of four climate sensitive health impacts. They looked at malaria, malnutrition, diarrhea and inland flood related fatalities. So which regions suffered the most from climate change, Africa and South Asia. And this is on a global scale, but we see the same thing at a national, regional and local level. 
those people who have contributed the least to the problem are being hit first and the hardest. It's going to get all of us in the end, but at the moment it's children, the elderly, lower socioeconomic groups, rural and remote populations, indigenous populations who are being hit the hardest. And of course, they're the ones often with the least capacity to adapt. So climate change is an issue of health equity and social justice. And this slide is just to remind me that we talked a little about climate change, but these other environmental issues, plastic pollution, um, soil and water contamination, deforestation, loss of biodiversity, these are all equally important um, environmental and health issues. Um, in terms of plastic pollution, that's plastic pollution in the sea. There is a mind-boggling amount of rubbish in the Pacific Ocean called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It is three times the size of France. So you would think that given the urgency and the seriousness of the situation, the governments around the world would be acting and we'd all be in like emergency mode. We're not. And there's probably a whole bunch of reasons for that, but for a health audience, I always like to make this point. Who do you think said this? It is now well documented in this book and, and, and elsewhere that the tactics used by the fossil fuel industry, creating doubt, discrediting scientists, obfuscation, um, setting up front organisations, intense political lobbying, those tactics are precisely the same tactics and in many cases, the same people and the same organisations who are involved for so long with the tobacco industry. And they have been remarkably successful. They're powerful, they're well-funded and well-organised and have been very successful in delaying an appropriate response to climate change. And we continue to see elements of that. If you look at how the gas lobby now is trying to position themselves as a cleaner fuel or as a transition fuel, when the latest evidence shows that with fugitive methane emissions. Um, in many cases, gas is just as polluting as coal. And that's before we even get into the question of you know, the significant risks involved with practices such as fracking. So absolutely, as a health professional, we have to be aware of these wider issues. Okay, so why do we have a particular responsibility and opportunity? I'll come on to the research, but I'd just like to start with a little story. So in the 1990s, a group of clinicians at a paediatric unit in California began to recognise, and this is based on some new EPA data that was coming out, that dioxins, of course a potent carcinogen, dioxins from medical waste incineration were making a lot of children sick. And some of those children were then presenting to their hospital. So there was this awful situation in which the system which was supposed to be looking after children was actually a major cause of paediatric disease. So they were in effect producing their own patients. And that was then the beginning of Healthcare Without Harm, which has subsequently grown into a global organisation. And in Australia, we're now starting to, to quantify these sorts of problems. This paper was published two years ago and it shows for the first time the carbon footprint of the Australian healthcare system. And the headline finding is that it's 7% of our national emissions. It is the same as the total emissions of the state of South Australia. And this pie graph shows the breakdown of those emissions. Um, interesting things to note that if you put together public and private hospitals and a lot of capital expenditure, that's about half. So about half of our footprint is from hospitals. And the other interesting thing is that dark green sections 
nearly 20% from pharmaceuticals. <coughs> this is carbon footprint at our district. You can see the electricity scope through that big purple section is quite significant. But all that other stuff, scope three is a lot of stuff we buy and use. Um, and a lot of those smaller sections um, really indicate how carbon intensive our, 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 our system is intrinsically. Now having a big carbon footprint not only means that we are therefore, the health sector is therefore big contributors to the climate crisis, which is harming human health, which is the problem. But it's also a problem when the world is shifting towards low and zero carbon economies. In New South Wales, the government has set a target of net zero by 2050, and under their recently released net zero plan stage one, um, they've set out how they're going to reduce emissions by 35% in the next 10 years. Other states are ahead of us. In Victoria, they had a Climate Change Act in 2017. So that net zero target is actually the law. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, 2050 is a long time away. But crucially, under this legislation, there are five-year interim targets. So we have colleagues in Vic Health who are scrambling to think how they're going to meet their first target in 2022. I think the key thing to say here is that clearly this is a very rapidly shifting political and legal and regulatory space. But given the science and given the overwhelming science, it would be really prudent to start to take this issue really seriously. And the really good news for healthcare is that we have a very, actually very good story to tell. And that is because so many of the things that we need to do to reduce our impact on the environment will have significant health benefits. So some, some really simple examples, walking and cycling rather than driving cars, good for health, good for the environment. Eating more plant-based foods, good for health, good for the environment. Renewable energy, good for health, <coughs> good for the environment. There are so many of these win-win situations. And actually in healthcare, there's very good evidence that it's not just a win-win, but a win-win-win situation. Okay? In the NHS in England, they have reduced their carbon footprint by nearly 20% over the past decade, and they have saved nearly a billion pounds. There's very strong evidence now for the health, environmental and financial benefits um, of lower carbon options. So we have a good story to tell. Okay, and Who's best placed to tell that story? <clears throat> Ipsos Mori is a social research institute in the UK and they've ranked there from last year the most trusted professions in society. So you can see that nurses are the winners at 95% and doctors are 93%. So health professionals are the most trusted and respected professional group in society. We have tremendous influence, not just in our personal connections, but in our professional organisations, in our communities and in the media. Um, the climate crisis threatens the health and indeed the very safety of our families, of our patients and of our communities. And so just as we spoke up on asbestos, and on tobacco, so we have a responsibility to speak up and to act for climate action. So what can we do? There's a huge amount that you can do both personally and professionally. This is more a focus on professional and workplace actions, obviously. So based on our sustainability plan, it says that we've developed a top 10 actions for 2020. And these are very strongly aligned with the SDGs. So the UN, so United Nations, Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, are a set of 17 goals with the ambition of ending poverty, addressing inequity, protecting the planet, 
and really improving the, the lives and the prospects of people that we know. These goals have been adopted by every single UN member state, um, and they're now becoming quite a strong and strategic focus for many leading organisations. As we have seen today, sustainability is so closely interconnected with so many of these goals, you know, with equity and climate justice, um, with um, healthy oceans, plastic pollution, um, healthy cities, clean and affordable energy, uh, and so on. But we've initially, so they're all relevant really to our work at CESED, but we've initially um, chosen to focus on three goals and they're the ones um, emphasised there. So that's SDG goal three, which is good health and wellbeing, SDG goal 12, responsible consumption and production, and SDG goal nine, industry innovation and so now I'm going to go through our top 10 actions, just with little stories and case studies for each. Um, and you'll see for each action, the relevant SDG in the top right hand corner. Okay, so action number one, perhaps not surprising from a public health doctor, um, is a focus on prevention. Okay. And that is of course, because the greenest health system would be a system in which people didn't get sick in the first place. So it's really just in recognition that so many of the things that many of our staff do every day, um, to keep people well and healthy and independent in their homes and their communities, to prevent hospitalisations, to prevent readmissions. These are all sustainability actions. Okay. And there's very good evidence now for the importance of social capital and community resilience as an independent um, determinant of health. And in this intervention, for example, this was a community intervention initiated by a group of GPs in Somerset, England, basically based around care planning, social prescribing, um, community connectors, and this sort of structure of compassionate community. And the result of this intervention was a 14% reduction in unplanned hospital admissions and a 20% reduction in their costs. At the same time, elsewhere in the district, there was a 28% increase in their unplanned hospital admissions. So there is now very emerging and concrete evidence um, for the effectiveness of these sorts of interventions. This is a great article written by an orthopaedic surgeon, um, which says, you know, if exercise were a drug, it would be a miracle cure, okay? There's so many very clear benefits across a whole range of health areas um, from exercise. And she makes the point that um, a lot of people with medical conditions don't really think that, that um, exercise is relevant to them and that health professionals have a really important role in challenging this. This is a great resource um, from sports and, uh, sports and exercise doctors, um, and it gives for a whole range of different health conditions. So, you know, musculoskeletal disorders, people with dementia, people with um, at risk of falls and so on. The, the specific exercise prescription or the health advice that you could give them if you've got a one minute or a five minute consultation. Um, action number two is about is moving towards zero waste. So basically in our district, the aim is to move towards zero waste in our non-clinical areas, so in our offices and tea rooms, just through the use of reusable um, equipment and through composting food scraps and food waste. Food waste is really important. Um, if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest emitter on the planet. Okay. That's what we can do in those areas. And the really important thing to understand really is, is the waste hierarchy, which is up there. And that is that reusing and recycling are important, but if we really want to cut to the chase, we need to think strongly about how we can prevent and avoid waste in the first place. 
Now, talked about the non-clinical areas. Clinical stuff is obviously um, trickier. Um, and the, the, the initial focus really, you know, the bang for our buck action is about appropriate waste segregation. So clinical waste costs us much more, both financially and environmentally, than general waste. So appropriate segregation of waste is a really important first step. Um, and then we're looking at, you know, specific recycling schemes around metals and PVC recycling and so on. The waste is expensive. There was an, uh, a recent study from the Royal Melbourne Hospital that found that the disposal of surgical waste cost five times as much as the cost of the equipment itself. So again, there are important health, um, sorry, environmental and financial benefits from reducing our waste. This is a great case study from Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. Um, staff there were concerned about the use of non-sterile gloves. They were seeing non-sterile gloves being used to bathing babies, and pushing trolleys around and so on. And so they ran a, a, just a concerted staff education and engagement campaign about reducing the inappropriate use of non-sterile gloves. And they saved more than 20 tonnes of plastic and about 90,000 pounds just from that. Action number three, Eat more plant-based foods, good for your health, good for the environment. Um, one example, this is Boston Medical Center in the US and their rooftop garden. They grow organic fruit, fruits and vegetables on the hospital roof and they use that in their patient meals and in their hospital cafeteria. And around this, they have a whole bunch of staff and community engagement programs around healthy eating and cooking and so on. Action number four, reduce unnecessary tests and procedures. There is growing concern in medicine about the harms and the risks and the costs, and that's not just the financial costs, of course, but also the environmental costs of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. So one of the really important things that clinicians can do is really carefully weigh up the risks and benefits of ordering tests and procedures. This is a study published recently in the MJA, which looked for the first time at the carbon footprint of pathology testing. Okay. We looked at five common um, hospital pathology tests and measure the carbon footprint for each of those. Uh, and you can see there that doing the full ordering of full blood count is the equivalent of driving a standard car nearly 800 metres. Action number five is prudent prescribing. If you recall, pharmaceuticals are nearly 20% of our whole carbon footprint. So one of the most important things that clinicians can do is to optimise prescribing. We know that there are significant harms and risks to patients from side effects, drug interactions, and polypharmacy. Okay? And so for clinicians, and particularly senior clinicians, optimising medication use, reviewing medication charts, de-prescribing where appropriate, are really um, important and effective actions. Polypharmacy in Australia, uh, a recent article published in MJA. Action number six is consider sustainability in your clinical decisions. So, and the key thing here is that um, just missing one slide. There is um, growing, uh, I guess the key message here is that in the future, carbon will be as important as money. Okay. It will be like a new currency. Um, and so as health professionals, we need to start thinking about not just the health outcomes, and that will always be our primary consideration, not just the financial costs, but also the carbon costs of everything that we do. 
Um, and the slide that is missing is from the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare in Oxford um, in the UK. And they are actually now starting to train health professionals in um, carbon accounting. And so there are some examples of this, um, for example, with respiratory inhalers. So the propellants, the hydrofluorocarbons, which are used as the propellants in meter-dosed inhalers, are really potent greenhouse gases. It's been calculated in, in, in the NHS, the emissions from respiratory inhalers are 8% of the whole of the NHS's carbon footprint. Uh, and there are alternatives. Um, the dry powder inhalers are much less environmentally damaging. Of course, they're not appropriate in all situations. And so there is some research underway, including here in Australia, you can see this came from Monash, to look at reducing the carbon footprint of inhalers, for instance. In anaesthetics, um, anaesthetic gases are about 2% of the NHS's carbon footprint. Um, and of note, uh, a gas such as desflurane is 60 times more environmentally damaging than other equivalent gases. So in this example, um, a group of anaesthetists in Bristol in the UK um, running a, a program in their um, unit to have colleagues shift from desflurane, wherever appropriate, to sevaflurane. Um, and have, they've got some really exciting um, initial results. Um, in ophthalmology, cataract surgery is the most commonly performed um, surgical procedure in the world. Okay? And so just by virtue of volume alone, it's going to have quite a significant carbon footprint. There is now quite a lot of research going on looking at the carbon footprint um, and the waste produced from cataract surgery. Okay, action number seven is to plant <coughs> a tree. Um, trees have a whole range of health benefits. Um, from, you know, there've been studies which show that patients recover quicker if they have a view of trees rather than a brick wall. Um, trees have been shown to improve um, staff wellbeing and retention. They provide shade, provide significant cooling impact, um, reduce air pollution, provide space for recreation, social interaction. There's a whole range of health benefits from trees, as well as of course of them being an important climate mitigation and adaptation measure. Um, in the NHS, they have this program called NHS Forest, which is about um, planting trees and gardens and green spaces um, on NHS land um, as, a, as, a, as a way to improve staff and patient and visitor and community wellbeing. Um, and so far they've planted more than 65,000 trees. This is um, Older Hay Hospital in Liverpool in the UK. You can see the park there and then to the left of the park at the top is the old hospital and then the car park below it. And then they build a new hospital. You can see the new hospital there. And then that's what they did. Older Hay in the park. Action number eight is active transport. Um, I think the poster sums it up. There are a lot of great initiatives around active transport. Um, I've just chosen one. This is in Newcastle in the UK. The city council there has implemented a clean air zone. <clears throat> and so accordingly, the, the um, hospital, which had previously used diesel vans, like as a courier service, had shifted to a trial of cargo electric bikes. Um, and they found it was a very successful trial. They found that the bikes were easily able to accommodate what they needed to shift around, which is sort of patient records and medicines and linen and other things. Um, much less pollution, obviously, um, and also much less congestion. They didn't take up as much space as the big diesel vans. Number nine, switch off. Okay, clearly we need solar panels and LED lights and so on. But the evidence shows that five to 
um, of our energy use can be reduced just through staff behaviour. So switching off lights and computers and things is you know, a useful measure. And then finally, using your personal footprint and influence, adjusting your personal footprint. Okay, so three actions to get started. The first one is for Sethlet employees to sign up to our sustainability network. Just email me and I'll include you and then work towards our top 10 actions. That should be um, uh, attached or available for you. Second action is to join a climate and health group. I'll run through some of those now. And then lastly, get informed and get active. We've got a list of resources. The first one for doctors, this is DEA, Doctors of Environment Australia. Um, really inspiring group of doctors and medical students, rapidly growing group of doctors and medical students across um, Australia. You can support them um, financially or with, with your time. It's climate medicine, a terrific resource. Um, by, from an Adelaide GP, set up by an Adelaide GP. For nurses and midwives, Australian College of Nursing has set up a new policy chapter on climate change and health, information on their website, and also they have a community of interest um, on climate and health, and information there. New South Wales Nurses and Midwives, them at the climate strike um, last year in Sydney, um, and, and an active group there. Number of resources and organisations I've listed there. Just to point out the Climate and Health Alliance, which um, manages in Australia the Global Green and Health of Hospitals. So if you're not met, um, members of that yet, it's a terrific um, network um, and number of resources available through becoming a GGHH member. Um, this is a terrific video um, around climate solutions. That's out, setting out what we need to do. My favourite quote um, there from Margaret Mead. Um, and then, as I mentioned, my email address, you're very welcome to get in touch with me with any um, queries or if there's anything that I can help with. And then finally, just the conditions of use um, for this slide set. Please note that. Okay, thank you. Yeah.